Good morning. We are in Titus. Chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. So I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one located underneath the seat around you. They're blue. In that Bible, you can turn to page 998. That'll bring you to our text. We are doing a multi-part series through this section of Titus, verses 5 through 9. So I started it last week, so if you weren't here, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to go back and, and listen to what we covered. I'll briefly review just the topic that we covered, and then we'll continue on. We'll probably be here for a little bit. But before I read the text, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, I had also said last time that I would say this every time. Uh, as you can see from the title, Essential Qualifications for Elders, this passage does address specifically the must-have qualifications for any man who would be in the position of a shepherd, pastor, overseer, or elder of a local church. But what we're going to read here in, in these verses is basically what would be true of a person who has a mature, godly character or a healthy measure of godliness. And so while it is specifically speaking about the essential qualifications for elders of the church, it can certainly be applied and should be applied to everyone in the church, because everyone in the church, if they are believers, true believers, should be in pursuit of godliness, yes? Okay, so the entire church, and this is my phrase that I'll just keep using uh, as we look at the passage, the entire church should aspire to be what the church's leaders must be, Okay? Are you going to aspire to be what the church's leaders must be? Yeah? Otherwise, you're just wasting time, right? You're just wasting time. So, with that, let's read the passage. Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and... Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he begins to lay out the qualifications for those elders that Titus is to appoint. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, it's another title for elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. It's not an option. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm 
to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So a little bit of a review. Above reproach, above reproach is the first thing he lays out as an essential qualification for an elder, also translated blameless in other Bibles. As I told you last week, being above reproach means that the elder's reputation has not been marred by moral or ethical disgrace. That's how one writer defines it. Another commentator goes on to add this about being above reproach. This word, the Greek word that's translated above reproach or blameless, stands at the head of the list as the general or broad quality that covers the whole of an elder's life. Those qualifications that follow give the many details which test his blamelessness. Being above reproach, however, does not mean he is perfect or without room for improvement in any one of the areas that follow. Why? Because no one is perfect. Generally speaking, an elder, though, is to be a model of Christian maturity and the qualities of these passages here in Titus 1 and also in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3. All of these qualities are marks of maturity which must characterize the qualified man. Okay? And again, don't check out if you're not an elder or aspiring to be an elder. Don't check out because you should be aspiring toward these qualifications as well because they're just godliness. Paul then, this is review, after stating that overarching qualification above reproach, focuses in on the domestic life of the elder. So, the man's home life. His home life must be above reproach. And what does Paul talk about specifically? Well, the wife and the children of the man. He is to be the husband of one wife, and that is, we spent the entire time last Sunday covering just that. And there are various views concerning what that means, and we covered that, so I won't do that again, but does that mean he must be a married man? In other words, single men can't be elders. Some believe that. We do not. I don't believe that's what it's saying. Does it mean he cannot be a polygamist? Well, he certainly cannot be a polygamist, but is that Paul's intent in writing that? Do not believe that is the case. Can he be married only once in his lifetime? I do not believe that's the issue at hand either. In other words, he couldn't be a divorced man, or for that matter, I guess, even a widowed man who remarries. Don't believe it's any of those things, although some Christians take that position. Rather, we believe it means, or I believe it means, the leadership believes it means, and you'll see that in our doctrinal statement, that he must be devoted and faithful to one woman, his wife. It literally, the phrase there is a one-woman man. So he is to be maritally and sexually above reproach. As one 
author put it, the literal phrasing here in this passage, one woman man, if you look at the Greek, seems focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to his spouse. So that's the first, or actually the second qualification, but the first one considering his domestic life. Now, we move on to the next qualification concerning the elder's home. You ready? And we won't get any farther than just this one, because it's a little complicated as well. All right? So, Titus 1.6, looking back at the text, besides being a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is how the ESV translates the text. Let's focus on that phrase, his children are believers. The essential qualifications for elders, or this one, is, is similar in a few ways to the husband of one wife qualification. How? Well, in this way. First of all, as I mentioned last week, I don't think that that particular qualification should be understand to mean that an elder has to have a child or children. Just as I said about the husband of one wife, I do not believe that means he has to be married. It only applies if that circumstance is a reality. <laughs> okay? So if he does have children, though, then there are certain things that must be true in regard to his children, per Paul, per God, which we're going to look at. And the second similarity uh, with the husband of one wife would be that there is disagreement among godly men concerning the proper interpretation of this qualification. And the differences are not insignificant and what they would mean for a potential elder. In fact, they are so significant that depending on what position you take, many pastors would need to resign, including this one. Ah, more serious now. And it is serious. It is serious. So I'll explain that statement in a second as we move through the text, okay? So the ESV, along with other good Bible translations, translates verse 6 as, and you can, it, we just saw it on the screen, and if you have an ESV, you can see it, that is, children are believers. And so that has been understood to mean that a qualified elder's children must have a personal faith in Jesus Christ or that they are genuine Christians. That is, for those who are old enough to have made such a decision. Okay? That is the first view. We're only going to look at two, because it's just primarily two, and then a little bit of variation concerning those two, but that's the primary point. Which immediately raises questions, but I'm, we'll try, I'll try to save that as we continue to look past, uh, or look at this passage. So, and I said godly men, godly scholars hold this position. One says it this way, the children must share their father's Christian faith. Share it. 
In other words, possess it. Be a follower of Christ himself or herself. He must. This is a commentator that I use all the time in looking at the passages as we go through it. And a good Bible commentator. He must have believing children. He goes on to say this. If they remain pagans, it would throw into question the father's ability to lead others to the faith. Would it? So that's me just questioning that statement. Would it necessarily throw that into question? Uh, you know, so for me, immediately something like Jesus comes to mind. He had a group of men all professing to be followers of him, and yet all along the way we knew one was a traitor. He would betray him. He would deny him. It not for a moment throws into question the validity of uh, or abilities of Christ to call men unto himself. But I'm just giving you these statements in support of their position, or at least what they say. Another says this, this requirement that the elder be capable of influencing his own children to become Christians demonstrates Paul's conviction that effective, effective spiritual leadership in the home suggests the probability of effective spiritual leadership in the church. So again, just think about what they're saying for a moment. Effective then spiritual leadership, at least, is now being defined as you have led your children to Christ. Whereas I would tend to uh, define effective spiritual leadership is you have told them of Christ and you have lived out Christ before them. You have made him known. You have faithfully proclaimed him again and again and again. You have shared with them their need for Jesus and pointed your young children to Jesus and older children to Jesus. That to me is effective spiritual leadership. For the reasons that I, I don't have any power actually to, to make them become followers of Christ. But I am to point them to him continually by word and by deed. By what I say and by what I do. Another... Uh, very respected uh, man of God, John MacArthur. Here's what he says. He takes the view that it, it is children must be believers. We have his uh, study Bible that we, we offer in the back for you to pick up. It's a fantastic study Bible. So, you know, again, I don't agree with uh, his position here, but uh, I, I highly respect this man. It is not that a faithful and conscientious father is responsible for his children's rejection of the gospel. Oh, good. That's, I, I'm glad to hear that. That's what he says. But then he goes on to say, he may have made every effort to teach them their need of salvation through trust in Jesus Christ and have set a godly example for them to follow, which is what I would want to see in a man that's going to be an elder of the church. But then he says this, nevertheless, such men are not qualified to be elders if they do not have children not only who believe but who also are not accused of dissipation or rebellion and he's just bringing in the remainder of that verse in Titus 
So if that is what Paul is saying, that's why I said I would need to resign. I have a son who, if he was brought up on charges of being a Christian, no reasonable jury would convict him. Although he professed faith at one time, I don't believe, he's definitely not walking with the Lord, so I don't believe he's a, he's a follower of Christ. I hope and pray he will. Uh, remember all the things he was taught as a child and realize his need, his desperate need for Christ, but not a believer, as far as I can tell. So, I would have to step down if that is what Paul is saying. And I'm not alone in these things. John Piper would have had to have stepped down at some point when his son went off the rails and walked away from the Lord, and I think sense came back, but then there's questions about the other son. I don't know. John, as far as we know, all of his kids are still following the Lord, so he's in good shape. So he's good with he can hold this position and remain a pastor. He goes on to say this, successful spiritual leadership of their own families, again, how they're just finding successful, meaning that they come to Christ, the kids come to Christ, is their proving ground, as it were, for spiritual leadership in the church because they are to be models of Christian living. And he goes on to say, if you want to know if he is able to lead the unsaved to faith in Christ and to help them grow in obedience and holiness, simply examine the effectiveness of his efforts with his own children. So those are, those are the positions. That's, all of them are saying basically the same thing, to hold the position that an elder's children, in order for him to be qualified as an elder, they must be followers of Christ. And then they're stating the reasons why. Because it's the testing ground for whether or not they can lead others to Christ successfully, if their lives can do that, if their testimony can do that. I, I just don't agree. Uh, here's some reasons I... And I, I get it, you can, you can get it, but the problem with this view, a problem with the view, as others who take a different view, which I'll share with you in a moment, is, as they stated, insisting that having believing children is a prerequisite to eldership leads to some uncomfortable questions. For instance, as we begin to examine what that would mean, the implications of it, the consequences of that position. And let me just say this, if that is what Paul says, I don't care, then that's the truth, and we should abide by it, okay? If that is what he is saying, we come on, you are to come under it. So if I believe that, if that was my conviction, then uh, I would step down. But it's not like I just figured out what my position was when I got to Titus. We've examined this, this particular situation. This is all examined and dealt with in our statement of faith. And if you've read it and looked at it, you can see that we take a different position than that the children must be followers of Christ. But let's just examine that position. So how about this question? If most of the elders' children are believers, now I'm saying most, and at least one of them are not, does the one, let's just say one, unbelieving child call into question that man's ability to lead the unsaved to faith in Christ? I mean, if that's the logic we're using, and he's got four that are following Jesus and one that isn't, what happened? Should I question whether or not he can actually lead someone to the Lord or that he's faithful? 
in making Christ known and modeling Christ? And if I were to suggest that he is, then why did any of his children turn out to be believers? I mean, I could go back to, and it's way back, but it's like, you know, looking at the issue of Cain and Abel. I mean, one was a murderer, and the other one, according to the Scriptures, was a righteous man. What, what happened? Is there something wrong with the parenting skills of Adam, or was wrong with the parenting skills of Adam and Eve? Did they not love God and follow God, or... Somehow they had one child turn out to be an obedient follower of God and the other one a killer. Also, just it raises the question of if that is the case, the children are to be believers, when? Like how long do you give them? So for instance, if at, if at the age of the ability, they, they're at the age that they, un, they can understand the gospel and they can make a decision to follow Christ, turn from sin and follow Christ. They're at that age. How long do you give that, that elder to make that happen? A year? Two years? Three years before that happens? Hey, it's been three years. You know, and we started counting at seven, so now they're ten. And they still haven't turned to Christ. I'm not sure you have the goods to lead others to Christ. Or maybe there's something wrong with your, your life, and that's why your 10-year-old hasn't yet turned to Christ. I mean, there's just these kind of questions that you would have to ask, I think. I think they're fair to ask if that is what it's saying. The other question would be, what, what are we to make of a child that professes faith? All right, let's say the child professes faith while in the household, but later on in life, when they have grown and left the house, denies Christ either directly or indirectly, which would be the, the case for, for many folks, including my own. So my son professed faith in Christ, but then later on, his life does not line up with that at all. Well, one uh, man, author, Christian man, says, says this, get this, and he holds the view that all children are believers. He says, a man might decide, and I think should decide, these are his words, to step down if one of his six children fall away from the faith. And he's saying, whether they're in the house, if you go on to read them, it doesn't matter. At any point, at any point, if that child steps away from the faith, because if they do, then that would indicate that they were never believers in the first place, which would indicate that you never led them to Christ, which I guess means you're disqualified, if that's what Paul is saying. He goes on to say this, though. He makes, he makes some type of like room for uh, exception. He says, but if another pastor in his church in the same situation does not decide to do so. So you've got two elders, two pastors in the church. One elder, he has, according to this, six children. One of them falls away from the faith. In other words, he professed it, but now he's turned from Christ. This particular author says he should turn away. But listen, if another elder, it happens to him too, and he says, and he's got six children and one falls away, and his other five children are saintly, follower of Christ, only a crank would express his disagreement through a big church fight, saying, in other words, he, he doesn't decide to resign. 
He says, don't make a big issue of it. If the other elder... So you get what he says. So basically, I have a group of elders, just like we do here. Uh, Wes. Wes has all of his children follow the Lord, but then one of them uh, falls away. And Wes says, well, according to this passage, I can't be an elder anymore. I'm going to resign. I'm going to step down. He's still a Christian. He just can't fulfill this role anymore because he believes that's what it says. And that's what we believe it says too. But then in my case, I've got, you know, four kids and one falls away. And I'm like, eh, I don't think so. And they're like, don't make a big deal of it. What are you talking about? And he says, because then the person says, in, contra- in contradiction to that, he says, yes, this seems inconsistent. For if Paul truly teaches that unbelieving children automatically disqualify a man for eldership, then the purity of the elder board is worth fighting over. And I agree entirely. Now, in fairness, that's that guy. John MacArthur, I believe, would it would be across the board. If an elder's children turn away from the faith, then they would be required to step down, and there would be no exception. So I'm just saying, it's like people leave some exceptions for it, but if that is what Paul is saying, then it's, there are no exceptions. Child walks away from the faith, you're out. Not out of the church, not out of God's family, but you just can't fulfill that role anymore if that's the essential qualification, if that's what Paul is saying. You understand? Another writer says this, if that is the view, believing children, then it is in some way untenable as any man's ministry would be suspect until his children died. No, okay, now you just think it through, right? So let's just pretend for a moment all my three children were followers of Christ. I believe two of them are and one is not. But let's just say they all were. Well, time will tell. People profess Christ all the time, and then over years, you watch them turn away. And since we don't take the position here, because we don't think it's biblical, that you go in and go out and go in and go out of Christ, like you get saved and then you lose your salvation, then you get saved and then you lose your salvation. No. If you are truly saved, then you are kept By the power of God, in his grace you stand. He holds on to you. You persevere. So if you don't persevere, then if you don't, then your profession was not real. You had no possession of the Spirit of God. You only professed to have the Spirit of God. How do we know? Because you walked away from the Lord. And if that's the case, then you were never a believer. And that raises all kinds of questions then. So is that man's... That whole time that man was in ministry then, he was disqualified, I guess. And, but you wouldn't know until we got to watch them all the way through their life. You know, you're always wondering, are they going to, are they, okay, oh good, they went to the grave and they remain professing faith in Jesus. And so the guy can stay, I, it just, I, the, the men who hold the position hold it because they believe that is what the scripture s- says here. And they are good, godly men and scholars. And so it is, it is a position. It is valid. I just think it does not hold up to some of these questions. It becomes unreasonable at some point. And, you know, can you imagine the pressure? I mean, I could just see a guy saying, yeah, babe, no more children, okay? We've got two... <laughs> Every one you add, you risk, especially if you're salaried, you know, paid. It's a paid position. 
Every kid we add to the roster is another chance that I'll lose my job. It's all serious, but a little humor is okay. So that, yeah, and I could even just think of the pressure that would be there for the kids as well, and I don't know. I just, I don't, that is not why, A, I don't think it holds up, but B, there is another valid interpretation of the passage, which to me makes much more sense. So let's look at that, okay? And remember, I said that this is applicable to you, it is. If, it, if, it, if, if, if the other view wouldn't really be applicable to you, though, I mean, in the sense that it would almost seem like, because there's an argument, they also make the argument, well, if, a man call, if God calls a man into a pastoral role, eldership, then he's sovereign over salvation, he'll bring his kids to salvation too. You know, that's kind of how they argue for it. Well, then it's almost like it's a stamp of God's approval on that man. Because we know that God ultimately is the one who brings dead sinners to life. So they just say, well, he sovereignly chose that man for that position and he will sovereignly see to it that things are worked out in that man's life so they come to Christ. But then it's just a stamp of his approval. It really isn't solely based on the individual, the father himself, because God has kind of predetermined it and so on and so forth. So, but this position, as you'll see, does have direct application to you whether you're an elder or not, I think more so. So those who take a different view, and as I said, that would include me, or the other view, because there's basically two, they begin by looking at the word that is translated believers in the ESV. While believers is a legitimate translation of the Greek word, it should be noted that the footnote, if you have an ESV, uh, later edition, there's a footnote, that says that the word translated believe can also be translated faithful. Faithful. So what's going on? Well, it's simple. Listen. The Greek word here, and context is really what tells you this, it can have a passive meaning, meaning faithful, trustworthy, dependable, or it can have an active meaning, meaning believing, trusting. Okay, so it's either believing children, active meaning, or passive, faithful children. That very word is translated differently, uh, even in the ESV, in 1 Timothy 6.2, there it's translated faithful men, 1 Timothy 6.2, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, faithful men. In 1 Timothy 6.2, the same word is translated believing masters, believing. Same word. So one is active, one is passive. So in 1 Timothy 6.2, believing masters is referring to Christians who are masters in that context. But in 2 Timothy 2.2, it's faithful men. Now, the faithful men there are believers, but the word faithful is not speaking about their belief in Christ, but their faithfulness, their trustworthiness, their dependability. So it depends on the context how it should be translated. 
One writer says translated either as faithful or trustworthy or, or dutiful. Here it would mean children who are obedient, respectful, controlled, and submissive to their father. Faithful. Trustworthy. Now, there are other Bible translations that choose the word faithful instead of believing. I'll show this to you quickly. The New King James Bible. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The Holman Christian Bible. One who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. These are different translations of the same underlying Greek words there, rebellion, wildness. The NET Bible. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with, and I like this translation the best, with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. Interesting enough, you can leave that up just for a second if you would, brother. Interesting enough, the NET Bible, which has a ton of notes and footnotes through it, these are good, every translation I'm showing you are good translations. It has a note saying that faithful children can be translated believing children. Says this, the phrase could be translated believing children, but the parallel with 1 Timothy 3 4, where it says keeping his children in control or submissive, argues for the sense given in the translation. What is it talking about? I'm glad you asked that. Let's take a quick look at 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. So if you go back to the left, you can just, there's 2 Timothy in your Bibles. A little bit further, there's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 is the other section in God's Word where the qualifications for an elder are laid out. And it's referred to as a parallel passage. Is it a parallel passage? I believe it is. Meaning that it's addressing the same matters. That Titus is, that's being addressed in Titus. Both the same author, Paul, both addressing the same issue. The qualifications for an elder which are, as I said, a picture of godliness, which are then means or should mean that you too should be hearing, listening, and bringing yourself under these qualifications. So there, you'll see it's very similar, 1 Timothy 3.2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Then he begins to lay out some other, see the wording? Sounds just like Titus, right? Then he lays out some other qualifications. Then he gets to the area of children. The household, he comes back to it. He says in verse 4, he, the elder, must manage, manage. The word means guide, lead, direct. He must guide, lead, direct his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The New American Standard says it this way, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then he gives a reason. For if someone does not know how to manage, guide, lead, or direct his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he care for God's church? If he can't care for this unit, where he's there and has the most influence, and then how is he going to care for, watch over, guide, lead, and direct his own ch the church that he's supposed to be doing that for as an elder? You get it? So... Does he manage his household well? And it's defined as keeping his children under control with all dignity or keeping his children submissive. 
not leading them to faith in Christ. Not that he's not trying, but that's not what it says here clearly. Right? You see that? So, if these are parallel passages, and I believe they are, then here's an interpretive uh, rule that you use. If you have two passages that are speaking about the same thing, and one passage is a little bit difficult to understand, you're having trouble make sense of it, then you always look to the passage that's the most clear, and you interpret the less clear passage in light of the clear passage. Does that make sense? I don't go to the less clear passage and just do what I want with it. They're both getting at the same point, which I believe that's what's going on here, but then this is very clear. He's saying, to manage your own household well, here's the test, his children must be under control with all dignity. He must be keeping them under control. He must be parenting them to that end. Okay? So the, the other position, believing children, they don't recognize these necessarily as par- they don't recognize these as parallel passages, which I think is problematic. They think that Paul is actually saying different things in each one, which is odd, which would be really kind of strange. They say that in Timothy, Paul had young children in mind. And in Titus, he has older children in mind. Because you have to deal with it. Because if it's a parallel passage, then clearly you should not interpret Titus to be saying that these are children who come to Christ, because clearly that's not what he's saying in Timothy. Okay, But if it's not a parallel passage, then what is going on? Two different things are being said about children, which is odd, because this one over in Titus is pretty significant. they got to be believers. I think Paul would include that over in Timothy, if this is an essential qualification. That would be my position. But this is what they say. Listen. If a man's children are too young to understand the gospel and to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the standard given to Timothy applies. In other words, just keep them in check. Parent them well. They need to be submissive. As children grow older and the issue is no longer control, when I don't know when the issue is, that's odd to me. Like it's, so a 17-year-old is no longer control. They're still, you're still teaching them to be submissive. You still have to bring them under control. But anyway, if the issue is no longer controlled, the more demanding criterion Titus comes into play. So he's, the, the, the writer's saying, okay, so in Timothy, little children, listen, this is what you look for. But if the kids are older or even into adult stage, then you look for this over here, Titus. They must be believers. I just don't think so, guys. I think these are parallel passages. I, don't, I think it would be unusual concerning elders' qualifications for Paul to give entirely, you know, not to include this very important thing in both lists. And both of these letters were written around the same time. So, like, he's like, I mean, did he forget? Like, so, did he go, oh, I forgot, I better write. No, I think he would have, so over in Titus, the, if that's what it is, the focus is they got to be believing children, and as we'll look at, they got to be believing children who don't deny Christ by their immoral, rebellious life. Is that what he's saying? Or is Titus saying the same thing Timothy's saying? He says they have to be faithful children, and let me, help you with, let me help you understand what that means. They can't have a life of debauchery, 
wildness or be unsubmissive, unruly. One writer says this, Consider how closely the two passages parallel one another, or considering that, it is reasonable to suppose that the phrase, having faithful, believing children, the Greek is there, in Titus 1.6 means the same thing as keeping his children submissive in 1 Timothy 3.4. This would mean that the final part of Titus 1.6, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, is an explanation of what the Greek word means. Translated, depending on what Bible translation you have, either believing or faithful, whether it be active or passive in your understanding of the context. Faithful in their behavior, submitting to their parents and not being unruly. In other words, the Greek word in Titus 1.6 probably means faithful in behavior, not believing. I, that's the position I take. They go, he goes on to say, the man's qualification as an elder rests on his ability to govern his home, of which his children's behavior is a reliable measure, not his children's salvation, which he cannot bring about. So I, it is reasonable to judge a man in this regard. His care for the household, will he be able to do it? For the household of God, by looking at his care for his own household and seeing what the outcome is, specifically of his children. We've already talked about the wife. Is he a one-woman man? Is he devoted to her? Is he loyal? Is he faithful? Because he's going to need to be loyal and faithful to God, to the Word, to the people of God. Right? Now we're looking at the children. Is he doing what he's supposed to do? Is he caring for them as he ought? Is he leading and guiding and directing them? That will show up in their behavior. It will. But he can lead and guide and direct them to Jesus Christ his entire life, faithfully all the way through, and they may not receive the Lord. And so that final phrasing, let's look at that now, in Titus 1.6, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Or, as the Holman translates it, having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. And that's basically, the word translated debauchery, it means wild, reckless, irresponsible, or disorderly living. Okay, so sometimes the guy on the other side, the guys on the other side, they're like, dude, a five-year-old, you couldn't accuse them of debauchery. This is obviously talking about older people, and so they go back to, this is for older people, older children, they need to be believing, but then they can't be accused of debauchery? I don't know, that's even weird to me. Like, so they got to be professing Christ and not denying Christ. Why not just say they got to be genuine Christians? I mean, I don't know, it's just weird, but they would argue, you know, a four-year-old, they, you wouldn't put this word with the four-year-old. I don't know. I've seen some wild four-year-olds. I, I mean, I know, I know it's not just like, ah, but I don't think Paul has in mind, look, I don't think he has in mind a particular category of age even, just his children. Look at, it, look at the children, all right? So he's not talking, of, I, again, he's not talking about uh, terrible twos. Ah! Oh, that guy's disqualified. He obviously has no control of this out-of-control child. No, but he, as the child gets a little bit older, certainly, is he out of control? Is he wild and reckless? Is he immoral? Disorderly living, immoral? Is he willfully immoral, just living an immoral life? What's going on with dad? Where's dad? 
What is dad doing? Dad's not disciplining him, not correcting him, not addressing these matters or her. What's going on? And then the other one, insubordination, disobedient, unruly, unsubdued. Again, so this doesn't mean the kid says to dad, or dad says, do such and such. And I had a couple over the other night, I won't say who they are, but they were talking about their little one, she's really little, and uh, her favorite word now is no, 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 okay? So if they told her to do this and that, and she's like, no, okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, boom, you were an elder, no more. You know, you're out. <laughs> I mean, but if there was a pattern as they, you know, because you're working through all that stuff, but as they get older, if there's a resistance and un- they will not come under your rule, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem with your leading and your guiding. It doesn't mean that there's not resistance, but you deal with the resistance. <laughs> right? Or you should. And I don't mean that in a harsh way, but you're ca- you care about them, and you know that this resistance is not good for their life. Okay. So it's not like, you know, you scare them or, well, a little bit, but not like you just that. Or, you know, you come down hard. You're not harsh. You lovingly lead them with a strong hand. All right. Amen. One writer says, wild, insubordinate children are a terrible reflection on the home, particularly on the father's ability to guide and care for others. A man who aspires to eldership. So are you listening, moms and dads? Because again, I would say this is addressed to dads, certainly, but mom, aren't you there to support dad? Well, you should be. Support him in his role as leading the family, and if you're not doing that, then you're failing. You need to support him in his efforts to lead. Well, he's not leading. Okay, well, he needs to lead. All right, so you need to hear this. If any men in here don't lead in this way, you're out of line. You're wrong. You need to correct. Correct course. You need to repent. God has called you to lead your family, lead your kids, care for them, guide them, discipline them, direct them, call them unto godliness, point them to Christ, and then pray that they come to saving faith because it would sure make the whole thing a lot easier if they actually had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But meanwhile, you teach them the way of godliness. You instruct them. You teach them about authority since God is the one who establishes it. A man who aspires to eldership, he says, but has reckless children is not a viable candidate for church leadership. If he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how's he going to manage the household of God? There's a concern there. So a few more now quotes. We're close to the end. A few more quotes in favor. I might skip some of these brothers, so just track with me here. So grateful for my brother back there and all the guys who do the it's hard to follow me, honestly, it's, uh, but they do, a, they do a great... I wouldn't want to do it, but they do a great job because I'm, sometimes I'm all over the place. But anyway, in favor of faithful over believing, here's what some guys say who take the position that's faithful, and I agree with this. Strock, a father can be held responsible for his children's behavior in the home. Yes, he can, but not for their personal faith because salvation is a supernatural act of God, not the guaranteed outcome of a faithful father's efforts. Here's a quote from Nine Marks. All the requirements for eldership listed in these passages, being a one-woman man, being temperate, sensible, respectable, and so on, are matters of personal responsibility. To require that an elder's children have genuine saving faith is to hold one person responsible for the salvation of another, which is nowhere taught in Scripture. 
This would assign to humans a role in salvation that belongs only to God. Here's another gentleman, another pastor. While parents can keep their children under control through loving discipline and may prayerfully seek to bring them to Christ, becoming believers is, in the final analysis, something only the Spirit of God can do. You see, they're all saying the same thing. Finally, Strzok, again, those who interpret this qualification to mean that an elder must have believing, cho- uh, believing Christian children place an impossible burden upon a father. Even the best Christian fathers cannot guarantee that their children will believe. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. God, not good parents, although they are certainly used of God, ultimately brings salvation. God does. Now, of course, it's asked, if you take that position, well, what length of time should it be that the elders are held accountable for the behavior of their children? Only while at home or even when they leave home? Listen, the look... Look at the phrasing. If these are parallel passages, I believe they are. Manage his household. The assumption is while they're in his home. I mean, how do you manage someone outside of your home? How do you care, guide, and direct? You don't have that ability anymore. And an adult child outside of your home is their own authority. They're to honor their mother and father for life, but they become their own authority. They're no longer under your authority, per se. And you have no more influence over them, direct influence. Certainly indirect, certainly you try to speak into their life. It's not the same. So I think that would be pushing it outside of what Paul ever intended. You're just looking. What are they doing with the home that they have influence over? Right? So I would limit it to, one writer says this, it's reasonable to think that the attitudes and behavior of children still within the household provide an indication of the faithfulness of an elder in parenting. But while this formative influence is meant to prepare children for godly adult lives, it does not constitute a guarantee such that elders ought to be made responsible for the directions that their grown children might choose to take. Okay, so here's some application for you. So that's the position I take. I've done my best to explain it. Certainly someone taking the other position would give even more arguments for their position, right, in all fairness, but... And I respect it, but I don't hold to it. I hold to the one I gave you. I think it should be translated faithful and understood the way I've explained it to you. But how about you who are not aspiring to be an elder or, for that matter, uh, well, for you guys that are elders, hey, keep your households under check. Right? But it's not like, hey, I'm watching you. But it's, it, it says something, I, listen, it says something else. There's a problem there in the household. Like something's off, kilter, something's out of balance. If the kids are out of control, if the kids are characterized as being insubordinate in one of our elders' homes, then care would say, I would say, something's wrong here. You need to step out of the ministry of caring for all these other people. You need to focus on ministry number one, which is your household. Something's off. Something's gone wrong. You see? So there's, it's not just like, you're penalized, ha-ha! I mean, like, honestly, for an elder, that's not necessarily a penalty. It could be a relief. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, all right, finally I get a break. Thank you, kids, for being disrebellious. Or not disrebellious, rebellious. But, you know, I'm just saying, it's not like that. It would, but it's more of, look, something's not, it's supposed to be ding, ding, ding. Something's not right, guys. Something's not right in that home. Maybe it's something between the husband and wife and... They're not in agreement on the parenting and things are all over the place. Well, that's not right. Where, what's going on between the husband and wife? It, it indicates all kinds of possible problems in the home. 
And even when you go back to, to Timothy where he says, hey, you know, does he, does he not know how to manage his own household? I mean, it could just be a lack of knowledge, but you would anticipate that an elder would have read the scriptures and seen all that they have said about what God expects of parents and especially of the father who's supposed to be the head of the home, is the head of the home, is supposed to be leading and taking charge in this area. And his wife is supposed to come alongside him and assist him and support him in that leading. But he is to lead in the care of his children. Yeah? I don't know where I got. I got off track. But anyway, the point was I was trying, I went to the elders. So I'm coming back to you. You're not elders, all right? Let's just say you're not elders. Well, this applies to you too, dads. It applies to you too. You know, I'm just thinking about, I read an MSN survey the other day, and it said, should restaurants be allowed to ban children under a certain age? There were 248,000 votes. Guess how many said yes? 60%. And I totally understand why. I don't know what's going on. I mean, there's a lot, I do, I think I do, but just a removal of even the scriptures from our culture and even just regular standards of what is right and what is wrong, kids running up and down like crazy people, right, in your face and in your food and screaming out of control and there's no discipline. That's why that survey would be asked and that's why 60% you, yeah, let them ban those kids. It's just an indication of where we are, but it's, so the, also the case you see in the church, like what is going on? Why are these kids just, whether it be out of control, not listening, don't listen, another adult walks up to them and tr- tells them something and they turn around and just run away, they don't even listen? What's going on in that home? Are they being taught about authority? This is what Ephesians says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, and that's worth focusing on, but then look, look at this, but bring, here's the positive, don't do this, but do this, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's your charge, dads. You tell me you're bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, listen, they may come to faith later on, they may not come to faith, but regardless, you are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you are to train them and teach them the ways of the Lord, which would be one that honors authority, which would be one that is not out of control and unruly, which would be one that is not doing terrible things, not immoral, right? Listen, it says something even about how much you care about your kids. If they are out of control, then do you really care about them? And if you don't really care about, and I would say no, and if you don't really, at least there's an indication that you, you're caring about some other things more than them. And if that's the case, then why would I want you to care for the people of God? You won't even care for your own kids. You say, how can you say that? I don't know. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's what it says. He hates his son. He won't, he won't, and it, you think, is that, by the way, is all this stuff caring for, guiding, directing, leading, disciplining, talking to over and over again, watching, managing your kids, is that easy? My goodness, it's hard, 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 exhausting, I want to die, work. 
at times. At times, come on, let's just be real. It's a kids are a blessing from the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. They're also incredibly hard. And there's seasons of super hardness, but if you care about them, you will discipline them. You will instruct them for the hundredth time. You will train them because otherwise they will lead a life that leads to destruction right away. And they will hurt others in the process. Anyway, do you care about your wife if your kids are out of control? I don't think so. You did not just say that. I did. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Care about your wife? I'll close with this. What must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness. The children are still at home and under his authority. Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected of every Christian father and his children. However, only if a man exercises such proper control over his children may he be an elder. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that dwells inside of every one of your children. And we just ask, Lord, where it is needed or necessary that we be convicted by your spirit in his word this morning if we need to correct some things, if we need to repent of some things. Father, as I've said, the entire church, and this is true um, because it's true in your word, the entire church should aspire to be what the church's leaders must be. Father, help us to be that. Help us Help us to have households that honor you. Father, help us to not be okay with households that don't. As men, Father, we need to love our wives, be completely devoted to our wives. We need to be one woman men. Pure and honest and faithful. And if we have children, we need to do the hard work. We need to pay attention. We need to be involved in our children's lives. We need to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We need to train them and instruct them concerning Christ and His ways. Teaching them to respect authority. Teaching them to hate sin and love godliness. Teaching them that this household will live for the Lord. End of story. Father, I pray you do that work in this body, in Christ's name.